This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here we go, hour three. It is a great day for talk radio. It's one of those days where... There's all kinds of things to discuss here, and uh, earlier in the program, first hour, we were addressing one such where the Supreme Court earlier today has ruled that uh, this law that forced people convicted of crimes to pay surcharges to help victims was wrong. Basically, they said it was cruel and unusual punishment where some of these people don't have the means, the wherewithal, and therefore you can't beggar them unnecessarily. Uh, But this is where... I guess I have to defer to finer legal minds to know if uh, this is sound judgment, given that it was a 72, 7-2 uh, ruling by the Supremes. There were two dissenting points of view, and uh, I tend to favor the dissent in this regard, but I wanted to find out how our own legal expert, Joseph Newberger from Newberger & Partners, feels about that and a whole pile more. Joe, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm great, John. How are you? Pretty good, too. Uh, so this ruling, by the way, by the Supremes, uh, because I know that Stephen Harper had made this mandatory uh, right. in his day. Of course, uh, victim surcharges have existed since 1988, but they were made mandatory under Stephen Harper, uh, right. where the amount of the surcharge is 30% of any fine, with a minimum of $100 for lower severity offenses, 200 for more serious ones, if no fine is imposed. Is it cruel and unusual to impose such a thing? It can, because the disproportionate amount of these uh, mandatory victim fine surcharges were being leveled on individuals who are on public assistance in any event, so either welfare or, or ODSP, and it's really impossible for them to make payment, and if they do, uh, it, it's at the loss of being able to eat or do other things. So it disproportionately hit individuals who are marginalized and quite vulnerable, even though they find themselves within the criminal justice system, because it applies to all offenses. Before, it was better because the judge could uh, have discretion depending upon the offense which somebody has been found guilty of and the offender themselves. Removing that type of discretion from a judge, I thought, was unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court of Canada has agreed. Right, uh, that the judge would have some flexibility, and, you know, uh, when somebody's thrown on the mercy of the court mercy would be shown rather than the mandatory, which uh, is zero tolerance or one size fits all. So I've got that idea. But let me just flip it, because I would think that if somebody does something, let's say they key your car or they uh, break into your place and trash it, you'd like to see some form of restitution, wouldn't you, beyond just, you know, the legal prescription that they uh, go to jail or they're fined? How does that help the victim in all of this? It's an excellent point you raised. So if a case involves a mischief where there's damage to property or some particular loss, judges always can order, or fraud, for example, can order restitution or compensation order, which would be paid by the uh, offender. That is not disturbed by this ruling. This was about a victim fine surcharge leveled against everybody without discretion that goes into some amorphous fund that's allegedly used to fund programs for victims of crime. It would not go to the individual whose car was damaged or who suffered a fraud, whether it be identity fraud or a bank fraud or a check fraud. That wouldn't go to them. So in cases where there's direct damage and loss to a victim of a crime, there are plenty of mechanisms available to redress that through restitution and or compensation order. All right. Well, if that's the case, then you're making it seem like it's uh, fairly cut and dried. Why would there be two dissenting points of view on the Supreme Court uh, who felt that the surcharge uh, does not violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Because I, I think there is some prevailing opinion that anybody who's convicted of an offense or found guilty of an offense ought to contribute to the overall pool of resources for victims, because we are seeing a shift to some extent 
uh, more, and I, I don't mean this in an offensive way, but we're seeing a shift more towards victims' rights uh, now than we have ever, because uh, I think we may discuss Bill C-51 in a little bit. And, and there are those who are of the opinion, including judges, that this is something that, you know, you're just paying the freight for what you did, and too bad, you're going to contribute to the system. But it doesn't go directly to victims per se. There's a fair amount of infrastructure in that area. And I, I would much rather see judges have discretion and exercise it appropriately in the appropriate case. Again, with Joseph Newberger, 640 legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Uh, I will get to C-51 here in a second, but I'm I'm kind of curious because it was just uh, announced on the news. We heard our own Brianna Carnegie saying that the acting OPP commissioner, Brad Blair, uh, oh. is turning now to the courts because the ombudsman's refused to investigate the appointment of Ron Tavner as the commissioner come Monday. So right. he wants to uh, stifle the matter in the courts. What legal avenue do you suppose he has? I, I suppose he could seek some type of an injunction based upon um, political I- interference with a, a proper competition to appoint the commissioner of the OPP. So there's got to be some legal mechanism he's been discussing with the legal team to do it. The, the sad thing is this, you know, he's supposed to take, Tabner's supposed to take over on Monday. Uh, you know, it, it's very challenging to his mandate to start off this way. And any type of legal action, if the ombudsman has stepped aside, can drag this out in the courts for quite a while. So um, he's going to challenge the appointment through some uh, process seeking, I guess, uh, either an adjudicative review or some sort of an adjunction. But I'm not sure how successful he will be on that approach. I see. Uh, so is there any likelihood he could actually preempt the uh, installation of Tavner come Monday? Not that I can see, no. No. Okay. But it would be the cloud hanging over Tavner's head if this is still oh, yeah. to be litigated. Yeah, I mean, you know, just the, the way this has unfolded uh, and now played out in the media is not looking great for the government. And, it, and you know, Havner might make a very good commissioner. It's just unfortunate now that um, anyone has to start that position with this type of cloud over their head, given the attention that's been paid to it. And, you know, we as the public don't know a lot as to what's gone into this, and transparency was something that this government, this party ran on to be elected as the provincial government. All right. Uh, but nonetheless, what level of court would first handle this, do you, th- do you suppose? Superior court. It would have to go to the Superior Court. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, could drag, drag on for some time. As we've yeah. spoken of in past uh, episodes, there's uh, too few judges on the Superior Court in the province as is. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other factor. I mean, we're they're suffering downtown in Toronto just trying to get, uh, you know, important trials on. So, uh, yeah, our resources are stretched to some extent, certainly. Okay, uh, another important case, obviously, uh, this one has international implications. It has to do with the CFO of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, and uh, we know that she's been sprung on bail, $10 million, surrendered two passports. She's not going anywhere, uh, except unless the United States makes a compelling case and wants her extradited, uh, that has to be decided or determined before January 31st, as I understand it. Uh, Earlier today, Conrad Black was on with us. He joins us every Friday, and he said, while we're bound by treaty to extradite, uh, perhaps we should uh, rewrite the rules around that extradition treaty or try to get out of it, because uh, he doesn't think this is appropriate, sending somebody back to uh, what he called uh, a prosecutocracy. (laughs) <laughs> I understand his perspective, and, you know, st- I used to do a tremendous amount of extradition work, and I think the statistic's accurate that about 90% of, 90% of people who are sought by the U.S. Uh, will eventually be extradited. So it's really a fait accompli. 
in this case, what's very interesting is we don't know enough about the meat and evidence of the allegations because this surrounds the alleged transfer of shares in a company that was operating in Iran in order to avoid U.S. sanctions. And if the U.S. is alleging a fraud or a breach of their own sanctions imposed on on Iran, it's not entirely clear to me that the case that the U.S. will be able to establish in Canada will, will mimic an offense that's available in Canada. So, for example, if somebody is charging the United States with homicide, it, it's rather easy because we have the same type of charge in Canada. There has to be parity of the offense. In this case, this is very interesting because it involves international sanctions imposed by one country, and we're not sure about what evidence they are going to disclose in the statement of their case. And then, of course, there's all this international uh, you know, political wrangling which is going on because Canadians are at risk in, in China. Very interesting scenario. But, Joe, uh, as I was saying earlier, it's up until January 31 that this determination has to be made, but it has to be predicated on the U.S. Attorney General filing a compelling case. Right. Could we refuse their criteria for extradition, say, well, it doesn't meet our standards? So what what has to happen, as I understand by the 31st, is they have to provide a statement of the case. So that's documentary evidence sufficient to establish a compelling case, which is a fairly low threshold. If they provide the statement of the case, that will be provided to the uh, federal prosecutors and will be provided to the defense. From there, a hearing will be set to determine whether it, in fact, meets the threshold of being a a compelling case. It's it's like a preliminary inquiry, a fairly low threshold. So the defense will then have a chance to challenge it on many grounds, and a judge could decide that uh, a statement of the case that has been presented will not be sufficient for extradition to the United States. And, of course... You know, depending upon what's provided, the Department of Justice may look at it and and come to a different opinion. Right now, we don't know because there's insufficient evidence provided. Well, uh, what's your best guess that uh, somewhere in the bowels of the bureaucracy, somebody's looking for an out on this one? I think so, because look at what's going on. I mean, when Canadians are being detained and we have these threats coming from China, there's bilateral trade trade agreements at stake. I mean, this is being played at a much higher level. And, uh, and sanctions that were placed on Iran was because, you know, the United States pulled out of that nuclear accord agreement. So it's not clear to me that this is something that will actually find its way through the courts. I'm wondering if, if indeed this will be solved at a political level because there are so many other interests at stake, which are both economic and the safety of Canadians uh, doing business in, in China. Finally, let me ask you about uh, the Senate amendment that uh, was rejected by the Liberal government. Well, actually, it was the uh, PCs as well as the Liberals up in Ottawa earlier this week, uh, a bill that would have established a guide for courts on defining when a person is incapable of consenting to sexual activity. It was overwhelmingly defeated, 240 to 35, and uh, some feminist groups and women's advocates, uh, rape crisis centers, are all upset because they thought a legal definition is important to have it fixed and firm, uh, and you say what? It's an absolutely ridiculous amendment. I'm glad it was that portion of that bill was defeated because it's just silly. In fact, we didn't even need it. The courts have been very clear to indicate that if somebody's unconscious, they can't consent to a sexual activity. And the uh, the case law on a capacity of consent, I think, is fairly clear. I don't think it's that hard for a court to determine when somebody is too intoxicated uh, in order to provide meaningful consent to sexual activity. And the courts have also said that the capacity of consent, the, the actual cognitive level, is not a fairly high threshold. 
there's plenty of case law on this. This was window dressing, in my opinion, and it's a good thing that the government uh, did not go along with trying to provide some guideline, which really would not help judges. The bigger issue is C-51 sets into place other amendments, which will have very serious implications for those people charged with sexual assault, including marshalling evidence about communications like emails and text messages like the Gomeshi case that pertain specifically to the subject matter that somebody is charged with. And in my opinion, it's a dangerous bill which could lead to wrongful convictions. Well, the other thing, though, is the Justice Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, is saying, uh, not this time, these are my words, but uh, we need to be specific here. It's imperative we get it right if we're going to have a definition of incapacity, which means maybe she's willing to go there again. She hasn't outright dismissed the idea. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And, And that terrifies me because this is exactly what trials are. Determination of consent is a factual-driven process. There's a legal test, but it's a factual-driven process, and I don't see how they can set out some meaningful guide. And we have to also have some you know, understanding of how human nature is and how humans interact with each other during sexual activity. You know, People go out, they go to restaurants, they go to bars, they go to parties, people get drunk, both men and women. We can't set out a guideline that will cover every possible facet of scenarios that come to come before a court to determine capacity. That's why we have judges. That's why we have trials. That's why we have evidence at cross-examination. And the Justice Minister is not in a position to set out any type of guideline to help in this regard. It's, it's absolutely, uh, you know, I think, an affront to uh, fairness to the courts, and it won't do justice to victims, in fact. Well, let me ask you finally, and I'm not even sure you can comment on this case because it's before the courts, but a woman who actually knowingly, willingly took the date rape drug, GHG, and yet uh, claims rape uh, or sexual assault, how does that work? I mean, if somebody's willing to take something that incapacitates them, uh, is that the same as alcohol or any other drug? Or uh, how do we, you know, can you comment? I I can comment a little bit because... You know, the, the issue really becomes, and it's quite clear, and, and people have to be careful about this. If somebody is silly enough to take a drug that renders them unconscious, frankly, or in a state where they are really incapable of giving consent, the other person should not engage in sexual activity, regardless of this person consenting or wanting to take it. It's, it's no different than if somebody is out with you drinking to the extent that they become so intoxicated, they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't function well. Well, that's not a person who can meaningfully give consent. If, on the other hand, they can talk, I'm not saying they're not going to be slurring and, you know, it could be a sloppy type of situation, but if somebody is so intoxicated, either on drugs or alcohol, to the extent that they're incapable of consenting, it's no different, in my opinion, than a date rape drug because, we call it a date rape drug, doesn't mean it justifies another person to take advantage of that because the victim in this case was silly enough to take it. So I, I think it's it's more clear than than others may, may think. Um, but, you know, we have to be very careful about this. And, and we also know that the courts have said that, again, an unconscious person can't consent. So if somebody takes sufficient intoxicants that they're uh, completely incapacitated, there can be no consent. Gotcha. Loud and clear. Always appreciate your interpretation. Yes, uh, I rest my case and yours at the same time. Thanks, Joseph, so much. Have a good night. As always, John. Take care. Thank you, Joseph. Joseph Newberger, again, 640 legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.